If you don't know how to interpret and internalize, then it becomes a problem for you because how do you then make a decision from something that you don't necessarily feel? A couple of months ago, I found myself in the boardroom of a big listed entity here in South Africa. I'd been invited to sit on their digital advisory board and in that moment, I was really regretting saying yes. It was not the most inspiring or insightful day I'd ever been a part of. Until towards the end of the day, a young lady walked into the room, a lady by the name of Lorata Semenya. It just blew me away with the clarity, enthusiasm and insight she brought to the discussion around technology, artificial intelligence and data science in the organization. I just had to reach out to her after the session. We've since had a series of really inspiring and informative conversations and it seemed like a natural next step to invite Lorata here onto the podcast to talk about this topic. In the show, we talk about Lorata's journey her fascination with technology and information, and what she's learned about how and why companies take advantage of, or as it were, fail to take advantage of, technology and innovation. This is a conversation that lent itself to a part two, so look out for another discussion with Lorata in the near future. So Lorata, super stoked that you were able to make it here this week, and like I was buzzing after our our lunch slash brunch yeah. uh, last week, <laughs> not just buzzing because of the hunters, I was buzzing because we had a, like a really good chat. And I think we covered like a, a ton of ground, right? We realized, I think we started the conversation in one place and then ended in a completely different universe, which is great. Which is great, yeah. Which is great. But I guess what, what I wanted to start with is hearing a little bit about some of your experiences being an advocate and an evangelist for the importance of data in big businesses, specifically as a kind of decision-making tool, and how you kind of experienced the people that I guess you were providing that service to, how they interacted with that, how they understood the importance of the work that you did. And yeah, maybe you can enlighten us a little bit about that that journey. Yeah. So I think for me, where I'd like to start is around all the, the hype. Yeah. Right. So, I remember the days, oh, big data. Oh, big data. Oh, we still had the three Vs, and now there's like a bajillion of we them. lost the Vs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that time of big data, I mean, you had execs who would say things like, we need to buy Hadoop. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. My favorite was like- Can we get like, this big data? Yeah, can yeah. we get it? Yeah. Can, we, can we use that to catapult us into the future? Because number one, the future is uncertain. And number two, we have this thing. We've got these analysts walking the floors. So let's use them. Yes. And let's use them to be able to give us this data to take us into this future. And my question was always, like, what is that future? Yeah. So you have all of this data. If you can't interpret it into something that you can use, yeah. if you don't have people who are centered inside process, who can actually make the decisions on the daily with that data, then it's actually pretty useless. Yeah. So um, then we started working. I mean, I was, I was, I was still in the financial services at the time. Mm-hmm. We started looking at kind of the fraud analytics to say, how can we be on top of that world? Because it was costing that environment quite a lot of money just in terms of being able to pay out the claims, blah, 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 and all of that. And so they, we, they're just solving a pain problem, right? Like this is causing us enormous pain. Yeah. So we see the, but very reactive, not, very not reactive, super proactive, right? Very reactive, but I'm happy with reactive because at least it's legitimate. 
you've seen where the problem is and there's kind of an impetus for you to try and solve it because it comes from a particular place. There's, I mean, there's a very vague area that comes from being able to kind of tell the future, that futuristic kind of world. Mm-hmm. A lot of people can't do that. Our imagination doesn't stretch that far, sure. especially in the corporate world. I suppose, especially if you're kind of burdened mm. with date, how do I get this done day to day, right? It's a very That's kind right. of short-term preoccupation. That's it's like, right. I've got to solve problems today. Don't really have the luxury mm. of looking that for, for, except that was your job, right? Your yeah, job was to- it was take that kind of raw, those raw building blocks, that the DNA of the information, the knowledge that your organization had at its disposal and and you know, sort of figure out a way to paint a future picture with that, right? That's correct. And, and the power of technology in that instance, because if you ask me what is analytics 101, it's literally critical thinking. It's got nothing to do yeah. with the tech. So all the tech could be in place, all the insights could be in place, all the pretty graphs could be in place. But if you don't know how to interpret and internalize, then it becomes a problem for you because how how do you then make a decision from something that you don't necessarily feel? There needs to be an element of benevolence in what you're doing. You have to believe Mm. that it's the right thing to do because otherwise in an untested, unproven type of world, how do you, you know, kind of put your entire weight behind something that you, you necessarily don't believe in? And that's why I like the world of data. It's because there's there's quite a lot that you can do from a creativity and intuit, intuition perspective. But once you have the hard and fat fact in front of you, then it becomes a little bit easier. But in the world that we're living in, where facts are a dime a dozen, and depending on what continent you're in, if you're in America, facts aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the facts are all available. But how do you then find the comfort in being able to make the right decision and right to use very, very loosely. How do you make the right decision given the information that you have without the necessary panic of there is in fact every single answer that I'm looking for available out there. All I need to do is shorten the time and place between myself and that answer. Okay. And I think that's the, that's the fear that a lot of leaders are confronted with because we know the power of our little devices in our pockets. We know we can pretty much search anything and be able to get to some version of a truth. Sure. But uh, if you can't corroborate, if you can't contextually make it real for yourself, and then you find yourself in this weird space of being confronted by things. I mean, now we're talking about trends and future of work and top 20 skills you must have and this and this and that. But it's not grounded in anything. Mm. It's just conjecture. Okay. So we're talking about a lot of things here. Mm. We're talking about, like we've spoken about data. We've spoken about information we've spoken about knowledge we've spoken about insight right and i guess one of the challenges for somebody certainly in the world that you were in is that those words get used interchangeably as though they're all the same thing right but if you had a colleague that walked into your office let's say in in the bank or any other organization that you were a part of closed the door behind them sat down at your desk and said Look, Lorata, I need I need your help. What the hell is data? <laughs> like, what? Please explain to me what what do we actually mean when we say data? What what would your response have been today? So I'm glad that you started speaking about almost a journey along which you need to travel. So the fundamental building blocks are data. If there's anything, a reading that you get from a thermometer, that's yep. data. Yeah. Right. And for you to be able to turn that into information, to be able to turn that into knowledge, uh, insights, and ultimately the final step would then be wisdom, mm. right? There's there's quite a lot that needs so to happen. Applied insight. Absolutely. Right? You have to consistently 
make some systematic change to that little that state to be able to get you to the next state. So if you're looking at and I mean, I love data because even the things that you can't see and can't imagine. So you look at the network as an example. There's a little cable that you plug into your computer. You're told that there are packets and all sorts of weird and wonderful things in there, but you can't see any of them. Mm. So how would you measure kind of the impact of network downtime? Well, in my mind, I'm like, well, I can't see the other bits. So what are the bits that I can see which are impacted by the underlying issue, which will allow me to be able to explain what's going on to me right now. Yeah. So my experience is that there's almost a step even before you, you spoke about the building blocks that yeah. there's almost a step before that. There's, I mean, we need to acknowledge that the, the dictionary definition of data, right? Like is, is the things it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> that it's an inscription, you know, on the wall of a pyramid. It's a symbol. Often we forget that numbers, symbols, letters, uh, that these things are data because we recognize them because they're in a language that we understand. But yes. you only need to travel to another country and to see something written on a wall and to have absolutely no idea what it means to fully appreciate that data is completely neutral. It has no intelligence inherent in it. It has no bias. It has no feelings. <laughs> it has no life of its own until you contextualize it. You know what I mean? So, So the moment I have some context to that data, it becomes information. But even that's not useful yet, right? Like we don't have an information problem in business. We, we, like, we've got more information than I think we know what to do with. We've got like a, we've got a curation problem. How do we distill useless contextualized data, useless information from really useful information? So how did you how did you do that? How did you find ways to make information more useful for people that had to make, you know, for your own decision making, but for the people around you that had to make better decisions? So this is the marriage of kind of art and science. From a context perspective, that helps because if you are moving from a world that's highly reactive, it becomes easy because your problem is known. Therefore, you're just working to shorten the gap between the known problem and a potential solution. So then the solution might not be known. Now, what we try to do, both myself and I guess some of the more technical people, what we try to do was to try to create instances where a certain truth could exist. Mm. You know, so if we were doing the fraud analytics, we were trying to say, if you are using an ID number to identify me, what other thing is necessary within kind of you committing a fraud. Mm. Either way, I'd have to find you to be able to give you kind of that fraudulent payout, which means at some point a contact number needs to be real. Mm. I don't know whether that's because I watch a lot of TV, so I've got some sleuthing built into my mind, but certainly we were trying to apply ourselves outside of the space that we weren't necessarily trained in. You know, so the value of kind of a secondary story became quite, you know, mm. quite important because we weren't fully entrenched in kind of the areas of the bank that we were involved in. But certainly it allows us to be able to use our naivety to our benefit. You know, if I'm asking a question, I'm asking genuinely because I don't know. And therein might be our solution. I'm not asking yeah. because I'm trying to test you. And if you're willing to be brave enough to explore those paths with me, then we find ourselves in a place. But really, that's where I'm, I'm talking about the art component. Mm. I don't necessarily know the answers, but 
my richness comes from the creative questioning. Yeah, there's a deeply creative part of that, which mm. uh, maybe we underestimate or undervalue. I um, think so. I think so. That's why today we talk about storytelling being quite as important as it is, because once I've consumed all of that data, I've turned it into information, etc. how do I then create the stories for you who potentially doesn't see the creativity in it to be able to journey manage you? How do I show you that there's an interrelatedness between certain issues? How do I then move you from where you are to potentially where I want you to be, given that that might not be the final place that we end up at? Isn't there a problem of bias in that, though? Uh, and I think, you know, we spoke a little bit about that. And, may, you know, it's actually quite, quite, I love the analogy that you used of kind of sleuthing or detecting a solution, right? Because I guess, I, I mean, I'm not a detective. Surprise. But I imagine that if you were, you'd have to be very careful of your own assumptions and your own biases when you're trying to figure out, um, you know, who your suspects are or what clues to account for. It's a, it's a data processing exercise, right? I, I guess information can be used in one of two ways, either to kind of inform your decision making or to reinforce your ideas. Mm hmm. Kind of as and a, the like a being much yeah. more dangerous. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like much a retrospective dangerous. way of mm. going, ha ha, I was right because I've select carefully selected data that suits the thing that I was hoping to to be right about or the decision that I've already made. And how did you manage? Because I met you know you've worked in you've worked in the financial services sector, your big organization, complex organization, hierarchical organizations. And then in the energy sector, same things. And then in the human capital slash talent slash resourcing space. So you, you've probably experienced similar problems across all of these industries. How did you manage uh, maintaining the, the kind of the purity of the value of the information so that it wasn't used only as a, ah, see, I told you so, justification? That I imagine that must have been pretty difficult. Yeah, it is. So burgeoning industries often require lots more work than is necessary. Mm. So if, in essence, I was trying to establish a pattern of some sort and I let the tech do what it needs to do and it surfaces certain things, certain truths about your organization, if you inherently believe something different, you're going to work incredibly hard as a leader to dispel whatever it is that information is saying. But the data is, in fact, the cleanest version of the actual you know, occurrences of the organization. So that's that's the first battle that we had to come across quite a lot. People certainly didn't believe that the data. So the issues then became more the data can't be clean or, you know, I don't trust the system of record or whatever. Mm. So some of the kind of human emotional type, this can't exist in a world that I know to be true mm. from a legacy perspective. That would I would identify that as issue number one for us. Right. So that meant in order to be able to curb that, we had to create more than one story, mm. which in essence, if I look back onto it, is in fact putting in more effort than is required because we could just take the synthesis of that data and be able to understand, remove from my own biases, could there be a universe where this was true? Yeah. I and mean, I remember doing the philosophy of maths in university and it was literally about, can you imagine a universe where this was true? Mm. And if we did that, then we would critically assess things. I mean, that's why even today, when you talk about the human capital world and technology, I always say, you know, when you're programming these algorithms, you're using your own bias to be able to do that. Sure, sure. So it'll yeah. pick up or exclude whatever it is that you would naturally exclude or pick yeah. up. Yeah. So that's why that conversation became quite a philosophical one. And if you're interested in trying to remediate, 
you don't care much for philosophy. Mm, of course. Again, right? you don't have the luxury of... You don't have the luxury yeah. of time. You don't have almost even the brain span to be able to sit in and, and philosophize around issues where a known problem exists and you're looking to close a gap from a revenue perspective, from a customer retention perspective, whatever the issue was. So if we go back to the singular fraud kind of assessment story that we were talking about, at some point, um, what my client was saying that internal client, they were saying that we're losing money mm. by making payments to fraudulent claims. Mm. And I was saying, well, how do we then get to identify who these people are? We use a single identifier, which then becomes the, the, you know, the primary key. Mm -hmm. What other bits of data are in, unnecessary to be able to commit the crime that I could look at? And also, I need to be sensitive then to not build in the exception into the rule to make it difficult for you and I, who aren't criminals, I hope, to be able to do business with the bank without then being subjected to all this other um, kind of rigor of in terms of being able to do, to, to do business. And that's the kind of the weird space, the paradox in which you find yourself in to be able to say, how do I solve for this particular X, which I can internalize right now. Mm. But given that I've not been everything to everyone potentially there's some stuff that I'm losing out on simply because I don't have the context. Yeah. But then you have to surrender the ego that says I know it all. Yeah. I feel like we already neatly segueing into what will likely become the second half of our conversation. But I want to, before we get there, I think you know, I have the privilege of so many conversations with business leaders who will say over, over and over again, I wish I had better information with which to make decisions and I think there is an understanding that there is a there's two parts to the problem there. One is a technology part, right? Like how do I assimilate, organize, store, secure, and distribute data more effectively, right? So that's the technology problem. And then the second one is kind of like a interpretation problem or an analytics issue, which is more, as you said, like has got a high level of human involvement or input in order to become useful. And I, you know, I, I keep thinking that you've probably got these people in your organization that are doing this work already. Individuals that are extremely talented, <laughs> insightful, have thought this through, have, but maybe there is some barrier within the organization or some a cultural element that prevents that kind of information from getting to their desks, right? What would your advice be to business leaders who have probably these very talented people in their organizations, but are not... How, how would you want them to treat data evangelists, data advocates, data specialists and scientists in their organization differently in order to get better information out of the proverbial pipe? Yeah. So for me, the uh, I guess the biggest challenge is that when we think about innovation and thinking and being able to transport ourselves into a future, we like to think of invention mm. being equal to innovation. It's not the case. Mm. I mean, if that was the case, then I would never, you know, have that attribute, you know, attributed to me. Mm. But certainly it's about being able to look at w the operating context that we're in and kind of what would take us into this imagined future that we have. Because it's all aspirational, right? All mm -hmm. visions, all et cetera. They're all aspirational. Now, if we remove the vilification of failure okay. from environments, it'll allow us to be able to be much more enthusiastic about trying things that haven't been done before. Mm. I always say that in my environment, um, if you do something that's tried and tested and you succeed, well, we knew it was going to work. 
you know, but if you try something that's never been done before and you fail, you know, we're having pizza and beers, Mm. you know, you have the pizza, I'll have the beers. That environment means we're creating a brand new capability from a muscle development perspective that allows us to be able to try and fail fast, Mm. you know, fail forward has some of the stuff that, you know, other people say that when you find yourself in a situation where you have data, turn into information, and you then make a decision based on that, you must then feel protected. I don't want you to introduce to me four or five years down the line to say, oh no, uh, Mike's the guy that tanked whatever product five years ago. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then you're never going to be able to develop that muscle that says, let me try, fail if I must. But if I do, I'm going to document exactly what it is that I did so that we don't end up in that space again. So the second thing would probably be around sponsorship. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily need to sit at exec levels Mm -hmm. because the implementation of process doesn't happen at exec levels. Sure. So if there's insights to be found and acted upon, they need to be firmly rooted in process. Yeah. So if there's no process that we can execute this thing in, then you're always acting out of process. Therefore, if it fails, one of the first questions of performance management that you get asked is, did you follow the process? Yes, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess the gateway drug to, <laughs> to that kind of culture is, a, is just a, a welcome approach or a welcoming approach to different ideas or dissenting yeah. ideas or yeah. um, the opinion in the room that is atypical, a willingness to entertain ideas that are not normal you know, of the social norm in the organization that that's a, like you said earlier on, that's a muscle that you need to exercise, right? So that, you know, the, the, the power of being willing to uh, entertain, understand, internalize uh, and make sense of information that maybe doesn't reinforce our kind of core beliefs or the thing that we're absolutely sure is true or whatever else it might be. And then still maybe dismiss it afterwards, Mm. but at least give it the Mm. opportunity to, to grow some legs. Yeah. So you have such authority and, and it, you know, kind of experience and credibility in this space. I mean, what was the beginning of your fascination with data? Like, where did that journey begin for you? Was it like somebody came at a university open day and said, data scientists are the future? And you were like, yay. Um, or, or what happened? How did Lerato go on a journey of, like, I must understand the knowledge? <laughs> or where did it come from? So the tech journey, much more than the data journey, the tech journey started much earlier. Okay. As potentially maybe six at the time. I went into work with my mom. Um, and at the time, I mean, faxes were big. It's a big deal. A big deal. The telefax. <laughs> and I really was okay with typed text. But now paint a picture for us. You're, where's your mom working? My mom works in the unions. She works at an NGO. And what they focus on is workers' rights around, you know, gender equality and those kind of things. And she was in that same civil space then, right? Like, she was. Oh, okay. So... Six-year-old Lorato is, is, is going to work with mom, this kind of deeply conscious environment, right? right? And probably impacted just by that, right? That, that right. space and that presence. And then, okay, so back to the facts. That's so, right. So, so I'm okay with typed faxes, right? So I'm okay with typed letters yeah. coming out of this thing because yeah, yeah. obviously there's something on the other side that's creating them and they're coming out on my side, no problem. So my mother asked me to go and pick up a fax for her. So I'm standing at the fax machine and out comes a piece of paper with handwriting on it. That's blown. That's completely like, blown. I'm where like, are the tiny people? <laughs> where are these people sitting comfortably able to jot this stuff down and it be able to come out of this machine? Yeah. And I remember 
kind of just thinking, this is amazing. And I know I don't have the vocabulary to be able to even ask the question mm. as to what I just witnessed. And it was my little secret for a while. I mean, it took me a few years before I was able to have the conversation with my mom to say, actually, what happened that day? Like, where are, <laughs> where the, little people? <laughs> where are the little people that built that? And it really became kind of the foundation for me in terms of being able to look at things that may not necessarily be in my purview, my experience, and be able to ask myself the questions, certainly myself before everyone else. And that's why the data world ended up being quite impressive for me because it had a complete absence of vocabulary. Mm. People knew that the thing was important. You found yourself in environments that have huge amounts of data and they'd still say, we want big data. And I'm like, how much bigger data do you want considering what you have now? So the notion of being able to get to definitions, core definitions. I mean, there's one bank right now that's doing incredibly well One, because they completely abandoned the definition of what a bank was. Mm. Because before them, a bank was bricks, mortar, uh, an ATM network, etc. And they came in and they had none of that. All they had was a banking license. Mm -hmm. So I've become quite obsessed with definitions and what they mean. And is that the definition that I want to find myself in? Because if it isn't, do I not have the power then to be able to create something new? Yes, for a little while, people might think I'm crazy. But certainly, you know... The power of of one misfit becomes, you know, the 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 story for most. Yeah, and and hard to think of anything that is more spoken about with less clear definitions. That's right. <laughs> more spoken about and less understood than this kind of part of the yeah of the technology ecosystem, right? Although I, I suppose you could say that about many parts of the. Maybe you could say that about technology, like in general, right? Yeah. You know, everybody's talking about it. Every article is about it. Everybody's being disrupted. Everybody has to innovate. Gotta Uber your business. You know, tons, thousands of executives around hundreds of boardrooms spending billions of rands, and no two of them have the same definition. Right? This yeah. is a this is a problem. This is a problem. And I don't mind the fact that there are multiple definitions. All I want is that you must have clarity of what the definition is for you to embark on the transformation journey that you want to embark on. Mm-hmm. So if for you digital transformation equals digitizing, mm. then that's what it is. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. But be, be clear about Just it. Just be consistent about it. Yeah, Be clear and consistent and, and, and implement every single way. And once you've achieved the digitization, then you can move to other aspects because there's many, many words, many of which I use interchangeably. But all I'm asking is that for the purpose of your journey, lock down at what a definition means and be able to then create a single vision for the people that you're leading um, as an exec in an organization to be able to, to, to get to a reality in that world. So curious six-year-old little mm. Lorata sees handwriting coming out of a fax machine and it starts a journey oh. of kind of continuous discovery, right? Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm going to keep asking this question yeah. until I have the answer. <laughs> and give us kind of the high level view of how you got to, you know, setting up entire data competencies in massive yeah. South African corporates. Yeah. There's an article in a, in a magazine that says IT is one of the top 10 paying jobs in South Africa. And I'm attracted to that because, I mean, I look at my set of circumstances. I love to say my environment wasn't unique. I mean, I grew up in the township, studied on scholarships, most high school, on bursaries, all of, of university. So I like to say my story is the same because if you look at some of the challenges that we're facing in education right now and be able to access higher education, not much different. And I mean, it breaks my heart because nothing's changed in the past, let me say, 20 years because Mm. my varsity student number is uh, 00, Mm. uh, which means 20 years ago. 
I'm moved by that, by the way. <laughs> so nothing's really changed. But here I am now. I find myself in university. I'm seeing computer science for the first time because yeah. I thought IT was just actually I can't even remember. I, I can't even remember what it was because for me, computer literacy was the maximum that I'd achieved inside uh, the high school system. I get there. There's computer science. There's coding. There's programming. There's all sorts of things which you know the few that come from the private schools had seen before, and I had to start from another level of literacy back there. Yeah. I had to learn how to right click and double click. Yeah. While my colleagues were writing code. Okay. So you know? so as much as you were fueled by this curiosity, you had a mm. you had a some catching up to do. There's right? a very real element of there might be certain elements of of equity, but there was no equality. Okay. You know, I didn't come from the same sort of circumstances. Yeah. I didn't understand the same sort of things. So how so, did you get in front? Because, I mean, you did, right? Like, if we're honest. If we're honest. <laughs> but it's relentless work, right? It's relentless yeah. work. There's certain things that are fundamentally me, like the curiosity, which we can't explain away. Sure. You so can't teach the, in a university course. It's, it's kind right. of part of your makeup, yeah. That's right. And the absence of almost a shame associated with not knowing. Because mm. I'm cool with not knowing. Sure. I'm all right. Yeah. So my favorite phrase is, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not going to not know forever. The fact that you've brought it into my consciousness as a new concept that you've introduced to me means I have the means to be able to go and look out yeah. and be able to find out more about it. Yeah, it just speaks to a willingness I've to know been, more, right? Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've really never been put down by not knowing. And I think that's key and core. All too often now, if you're in the outer circle, you're made to feel like you're less than. And for me, that was just fuel. I gobbled all of that stuff up. You know, the new programming language, I don't know. Well, I go and I learn it. I'll figure it out, yeah. I'll go and I learn it because there must be stuff. It can't be sitting in your head alone. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with... Well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. I haven't really been able to stop thinking about since we had lunch last week and mm. kind of, you know, in this discussion as well is, is like a version of the story, the classic cinematic masterpiece, Sliding Doors with <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow from the mid-90s. There's it, like this sliding doors moment where little Lorata doesn't see the facts, doesn't have the opportunity to kind of start that, journey of obsession with tech and whatever and it maybe goes on a different path right like yeah. and I can only imagine that there's a couple of deeply curious deeply insightful incredibly talented little kids that aren't seeing fax machines to use the to extend sure. the, the metaphor the work that you've kind of transitioned into and and it really is a transition it's not a revolution for you it's not a pivot as you said to me the other day you kind of evolved into this new area of like how do we have better conversations around creating opportunities for other Loratos to, yeah. to exercise that capability? Do you want to tell me a little bit more about how that happened and what, what it is that you are exploring now? Because this is, this is exciting. This is very new, right? This yeah. is like a, a, a very new moment for you. So, yeah. Yeah. so I mean, I, th I think the first thing that I want to talk about is the notion of, of sponsorship. And I want to bring in the word sponsorship specifically because when we talk, we like to talk about coaching and mentoring, et cetera. But sponsorship takes it one step forward because sponsoring, 
allows you as Mike to be able to have a conversation about Larato, whether or not Larato knows the conversation is happening. Whereas a coaching and mentoring relationship, we enter into it and we know that there's a particular set of circumstances that we're working towards. So I found myself in a uniquely lucky position where I had um, a senior member of an organization, you know, innately see lots more than I saw in myself inside of me. And he was dedicated to being able to nurture that and be able to, number one, use it for his own benefit because Mm -hmm. it was mutually beneficial. That's the only way that he would put that much energy into it. But certainly he became genuinely interested in what he kept on learning about me. So not a case of charity, kind of a symbiotic, Absolutely. you and I can benefit from this together, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Being quite clear about those intentions. Absolutely. And, yeah, okay. Absolutely. So at any given point in time, he was very clear what he was getting from the relationship. Mm. And certainly from my part, I, I was then seeing um, live, in action, what, you know, bravery looks like. Because I'm, I'm asking myself the question, why would he even take a chance on me? Mm. But that's because he used a muscle that he probably worked hard to develop of being able to make a decision without having all the facts available. Sure. You know, so he spots the, the talent, he spots the creativity, and he realizes that to be able to achieve his own strategic objectives, because he was the leader of an organization, you know, that's the kind of stuff that he needed to do. But the relationship has to be mutually beneficial, like you've just identified. And we continued to work it. So the evolution was that we started from kind of the the governance related world of IT, being able to figure out if, you know, these are the objectives that you want to achieve. How do you close the gap between where you are and where you need to be? And then, of course, the world of data started coming across. And at the time, all the hype was BI. We're talking about dashboards. That's it, right? Mm. So we probably made full circle. Love a dashboard. Full circle. (laughs) But that 9 a.m. dashboard was everything. Everyone Mm -hmm. was asking themselves, what are the five things you need to have in your dashboard? Five things. Really? Mm -hmm. Five things. Without considering the maturity of the organization, you want to limit it to just five things? I'd be nervous. I knew it was five things. I'd be nervous. So, I mean, we had that conversation around what are the five things put in a dashboard. Every morning I look at the dashboard and I decide what to panic about. (laughs) <laughs> dashboards are great and those things remain the same while the operating context is the same what i really enjoyed about data is the stuff that lives and dies within moments mm. so here's a problem today i look for the data that either corroborates or dispels the myth and once that's done i need to retire that that doesn't sit on the dashboard because at the time it was quite expensive to produce dashboards not like it is today So to effect an entire 9 a.m. dashboard was a mission. So we were machining these things in good old trusty steeds like Excel to be able to build the pretty pictures and be able to show something. And once the decision was made, and that could potentially pivot the business, right? Mm -hmm. And so that taught me sometimes hard work gets you to a particular point, changes your trajectory, and there's no need to measure the thing again, Mm -hmm. you know? What's the next new thing? Because the 9 a.m. dashboard remains the same with those five magical things that tell you whether to panic or not. Mm. So this is the journey that I was quite lucky with my then mentor, who's still my mentor today, to have a conversation about, to say, well, you needed this information yesterday. You made a decision. You changed the course of the business. Now that decision doesn't need to be made anymore. I mean, do I go back to bed or do I find a new thing to keep myself entertained with? Yeah. And thankfully, he was very clear in his own mind. And whether that wisdom was innate or it, you know, it came over time as well, we, I mean, it's a, it's a question that remains open. But we then allowed ourselves to look at, given the objective that we have to be able to 
get a board seat or whatever the objective could be in your own organization, what are the data points? Whether they exist or not is another element of wisdom. If you're looking, and earlier on I mentioned, you know, temperature that comes from a thermometer, could that be information that you could use in the provision of your services to your customers? Mm. Well, if you're a bank and it hails and storms and all sorts of things and nobody can get out to the ATMs, of course that makes sense. Sure. So ingesting weather data to be able to see when we're going to have adverse weather certainly impacts on certain lines of your business. So when you look at that, do you then call that still non-traditional data? No, it isn't. All you've done is you've expanded your view on some of the data that you could need currently, but also what data could you need in the future that you're probably not collecting right now. And that's where you need to spend all your rands and cents in being able to build your capability to take you into that future. I'm aware of our time, so mm. I want to make sure I, I talk about this because this topic I'm like I'm really fascinated by the, the the discussion that you introduce around the benefit of the relationship with your mate because there is this kind of unspoken stigma or assumption around the idea of transformation, even if we're just talking about personal transformation or transformational leadership or never mind the kind of compliance based conversation around transformation is that for you to do okay. I have to lose something. Like I've got to give something away for you. And you're, you're kind of giving a really compelling example of actually we both can win if we're sort of explicit and open about our intentions and we play open cards with each other. There are, there are more ways for us to win together than to kind of lose a part. Am I hearing you right or yes. am I trying to write a movie script Romanticize. for Romanticize. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. You're hearing me right. If you are lighting a candle from my lit candle, my light doesn't have to dim for yours to shine. No, it sounds like a cat poster. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, it's because this is the narrative, right? The narrative Absolutely. is that like, like for things to change, mm. somebody's got to lose, right? Like someone has to. That's right. And, and maybe what we're hearing is that there's less of a, I have to give all of this up for you to do well. Mm. Uh, reality Look, obviously, we have to acknowledge that if, if we're in circumstances play a role in that, right? If we're in an expanding economy, if we're in a situation where the business that we're in is doing well, uh, it's easier to find Much those easier. solutions. It's a little bit harder when we're, we're all feeling under pressure and like the pie is shrinking, right? But and unfortunately, when the pie is shrinking, that's the greatest avenue for creativity. Mm, true. Because yeah. we're actually vying for mutual survival. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. So when we're doing incredibly well, it's nice and easy to introduce concepts like diversity and inclusion, which is what I've made my life's work right now. And for me, diversity and inclusion is not race. It's not gender. Um, it is those things, but not just those things. Um, the things that bind us are much stronger than the things that differentiate, differentiate each other from, you know, from each other. So it's important that we get to those open and honest conversations which a lot of the time will, you know, there'll be the naivety that comes with non-exposure. If you've never worked with a particular type of person before, as soon as you come across the type of person, the first thing that comes across may be a sense of, you know, self-preservation because you have no idea who the person is and how they'd react. Mm. But certainly once you get over that hurdle, you may start to realize actually this is the missing ingredient that, you know, I've needed for this recipe of mine to be able to work. In the corporate world, 
a large chunk of executives think of diversity and inclusion as something fluffy, number one. Sure. Number two, we've been having this conversation for 20 plus years, so surely we're there now. Yeah. No, we're not, because we're not making enough strides. I mean, there was a joke at the Oscars the other day that however many years ago, there was no black people there. And now in 2020, there was one black person. Progress. You know? Oh, yes, <laughs> one. So that one becomes now the voice for all of us, doesn't she? No, she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. But, Boxes uh, checked. <laughs> right. Done. Uh, and she was black and female, so two boxes checked. <laughs> but really for me, diversity is around being able to build a team that will allow you to see absolutely every facet of what your customer and your market are looking after. So don't mm. do it because, you know, you're a nice guy. Do it because the most diverse organizations right now are doing 21% better at the revenue line. Mm. Wow. They can spot the issues. They can see the opportunities. They can see the potential pitfalls and you don't end up being, you know, exposed to fines and all sorts of things like that for being insensitive. So, you know, don't do this because you're a nice person. Yes, you might be a nice person, but that let that be the cherry on top. But we're doing this simply because our operating context means there's an absolute war on talent. We've been talking about this for many years. Mm -hmm. But certainly people are now starting to create identities for the brands within they associate with. And if you don't own the brand and create that identity, you're allowing for cognitive dissonance. So I'll look at what you're doing and I'll assume that that's what you mean, whether or not it is what you mean. So let's take hold of the messaging in those environments and be able to say diversity and inclusion means I'm creating spaces which are safe psychologically mm. before everything else. Because in South Africa well, right it's now... where we can do our best thinking, right? Right, I mean, right. Fairly logical be, conclusion. You can't be creative when you're nervous. In South Africa right now, we're faced with massive retrenchments and all sorts of things. That is a unifier much more than race and gender and sexual orientation. Yeah. So I'm particularly passionate about, you know, black women in the LGBTI community yeah. simply because those are all the boxes that I take. Yeah, yeah. You know, so for me, the story is much more real. So I can, I can come across stronger and much more authentic because it's based on a lived experience. But certainly I'm not blind to the fact that if you were to, uh, from an analytics perspective, have a look at my spend patterns in my bank account, you know, I probably present like an old white woman. Sure. Yeah, sure. because um, I've got very little social life and uh, yeah, the rest. <laughs> but The other boxes. And that's why for me, I've become so passionate and a massive proponent because for me, there's a benevolence that's required in being able to be an entrepreneur. We need to talk about social entrepreneurship. Yes, it needs to be commercial from my side because I've got mouths to feed, et cetera, et cetera. But if I'm not making a change in this dear South Africa of ours, I can't feel like I'm using all the effort and energy that's been plowed into me to be able to pay it for it. Mm. So I don't want another young girl sitting inside a corporate environment afraid to voice their opinion, which might potentially be, you know, business altering simply because they don't trust the confidence that comes from the persona that they have or the sexual orientation or whatever the case may be. So none of that stuff should be barriers. All of that stuff should be kind of the ingredients that make for a fantastic salad if I were a salad eating girl, mm -hmm. you know. But we really need to Great put our burger. Yeah. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we really need to put our bodies on the line when we're talking about stuff that we believe in. And that's all I'm doing right now. Yeah. I'm saying corporate South Africa, the culture discussion is a massive one. I'm saying yeah. systematic change. How do we, at the policy and the process level, 
implement stuff that makes our environments inclusive. Can you imagine being a trans man or a trans woman having to think every single time you need to go to the loo at work? Yeah, cognitive burden. That's of, right. Yeah. It's called emotional tax. Mm. So you carry the burden of being who you are in an environment and then people wonder why you can't bring your whole self to work. And that's, you know, when we're holding up our violins and we're talking about culture and meaning and purpose and belonging and all sorts of things like that, we want to then, you know, close our eyes off to kind of some of the basics that say, you know, health, safety, blah, blah, blah. And safety, both physical and psychological. I can't express this enough, given where we are in this country. If you're facing a retrenchment, how can I expect you to be creative? 100%. I cannot. It's not lost on me that... So many of the themes that you spoke about when we were talking about being an advocate for the power of data in an organization are the same themes that are coming up in your kind of your crusade around inclusion. Mm. We were talking about the importance of that dissenting voice. We were talking about the importance of using data as a way to combat or rather facts, the, the data that makes up those facts as a way to combat confirmation bias and, and bad thinking. That's right. right. We, we've, we've spoken about adding as many ingredients into the mix as possible so that the outcome can be far smarter. It's also not lost on me that you and I could have at least another three hours conversation around <laughs> this. And maybe if I could, because I know that there'll be people listening to this that desperately want to hear more of your thoughts sure. on this topic over and above what we've spoken about in the realm of data and business decision-making. Can, can I steal you at some point in time for a part two of this conversation Absolutely. where we dig deeper into the, how do we have better conversations around the transformation agenda so that it doesn't feel like a zero sum game. Absolutely. So it's not a case of mm. you versus me. It's like, it's like, how, how do we build better businesses on top of this thinking? So can we do that at some point oh, in time? I'm committing in, yeah, live. I am absolutely. <laughs> so, live. so I can't lie. <laughs> so, so thank you again, Lorata, for, for your generosity, for your ideas, for your experiences, and for being able to share those in such a, like, such a powerful and creative, for a scientist, <laughs> creative way. I'm just very grateful to you for your time and energy. Thank you so much, Mike. It's really been an absolute pleasure. And, and I mean, I, I always say, which I've said to you before, I, I think the power of the, the the multiple stories that we have gets us to a place of being able to understand exactly what we can do as humanity. There's so many problems, there's so many opportunities in the very same breath that we are at the precipice of being able to solve. And I cannot wait to be able to do this with you. Amazing. Thanks, friend. Alrighty. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is a king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.